Good morning. I am going to be reading from Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24. I believe the on the screen behind me. So it says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So glad that you're here today. So glad to be here with you. And uh, uh, thank you very much, Elizabeth, for reading our, our scripture this morning from uh, the epistle of Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we've been answering questions through the summer series. Uh, quite honestly, I didn't anticipate answering any um, this time around. Uh, but uh, Pastor, I've been working through personally, through uh, the book of Ephesians myself. It began really last... Um, uh, fall, I guess. And, uh, really it started, uh, Bob, because of you, you were talking about the book of Ephesians and I kind of got excited about it and started looking at it. And I'm, I've been, I preached, I think last time in Ephesians chapter four and the first three verses. And I was just going to continue that going forward here this morning. Uh, and then Aaron, uh, got with me earlier in the week and he said, uh, you know, Tim, what uh, question are you answering? And, um, I said, uh, well, uh, I guess there is one here. Um, it is, uh, why are Christians such killjoys? Actually, I used the word prudes. And uh, he said, or should we really say that, you know, Christians are prudes? I think they are. And uh, we'll talk more about that. But um, it's maybe appropriate that I'm the one talking to you about that this morning. Why is it that Christians don't seem to like to have a lot of fun is a question that some folks ask as they look in at Christians these days. Uh, don't they know how to have a good time? Oh, it's, it's something that I heard as I was growing up. I was one of these uh, kids who looked very different than other uh, children from my own culture. And I've told some of you who've been in my Sunday school classes, um, you know, the kind of things that I suffered at the hands of uh, uh, some of the people around me because I appeared to them, um, well, to them, I guess I appeared to be very nerdy. Uh, really what it was, was I was different. I was different than them, and uh, that didn't go over too good with them. But uh, ultimately, it's a question that many people are asking. Why are Christians so prudish? Uh, why is it that they have such a narrow-minded view of life? If you look at the uh, last part of uh, Ephesians 4, I think we get, or at least the middle section there, we get kind of an idea of why that is so. Paul lays before his listeners the fact that uh, there are very high standards that Christians are held to. John Stott puts it this way. The society of God has an extremely high standard. His kingdom is such that those who are part of it have got to be different 
distinctly different. The behavior that is demonstrated in life of those who profess to be Christian must be in keeping with the standards that God has set forth. So I guess a a simple way of saying it is if you're a believer, the Bible would say you have to look like one. If you look like one, you're going to look different in this world. You're going to look different than perhaps your neighbor. There's going to be a distinctiveness about you that is obvious. And to make his point, Paul will contrast the old life with the new, where the life of the world will be distinguished from the life of the Christian. And he will paint a picture of this stark difference. And so I thought it'd be important for us at least to understand what's going on in Ephesus at the time. The city of Ephesus, inhabited mostly of Greeks, was predominantly a very pagan culture. And it was a culture that the Apostle Paul knew very well because he had spent two years, and we learn this in Acts chapter 19, two years he spent teaching in Ephesus. And it says that he was reasoning in the hall of Tyrannus daily, every day. There's a marginal note in the ESV that indicates that some manuscripts indicate that uh, he taught from 11 a.m. until 4 p.m. every day for two years. He got involved in all kinds of philosophical uh, conversations about ideas with those folks. And arguments would come out of those kind of things. And he realized where it was that the people of that town or that city, he knew what they were thinking. And what he discovered is that the things that they were thinking were very much in contrast to what God desires for the Christian. One of the things that uh, the Greeks embraced was to highly value the mind or the intellect of man. It was commonly understood by Greeks that the mind or how one thinks holds the answers to all the problems of life. And so having been immersed into the belief that human intelligence is the ultimate, there is no doubt that at least some of these Greek Christians in Ephesus were hearing something in Paul's letter to them that was very, very new. And so they were sorely in need of being reminded of these things because the influences of that surrounding culture had been ingrained in them from the start. They needed to embrace the truth that the winds of thought which blew so prevalently in their culture were not in keeping with the teaching of Jesus Christ. So their lifestyle should look different. Here we are some 20 centuries later, and we discover that intellectual thinking of man continues to be very greatly elevated. It's encouraged in our culture, and it's applauded by them, or by us, or the surrounding groups around our homes. 
For example, the late Stephen Hawking, a person who many in our day and time reckon to be one of the greatest minds of our century, concludes when asked to respond to this universal question, is there a God? Here's what he says. It's my view that the simplest explanation is that there is no God. No one created the universe. No one directs our fate. And this leads me to a profound realization. There is probably no heaven or no afterlife either. Now that is a picture of where human thinking, human reasoning can take us. What we'd have to conclude, since what he is saying is in direct opposition to Scripture, he's opposing what God says, we'd have to say he's intellectually astute, but spiritually he's destitute, isn't he? And this kind of thinking permeates the culture of today. And so because of that, we too are no different than these uh group of uh, believers in that little church in Ephesus, we have a need. We have to be reminded that we have very little in common with the culture that surrounds us. We are held to very high standards. And so that is what we are going to discuss today. We'll see that Paul talks in these and this passage that was read for us this morning uh, there are two very important realities that we grab a hold of. First, there's the picture of the walk of the world that he gives. And secondly, there is the walk of the way. So let's look at the walk of the world first, beginning in verse 17. This is what Paul says. Now this I say, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. Now, uh, I believe that he is definitely talking in a very general sense when he talks about uh, the Gentiles, and he says this is the way they walk. I don't think he means all of them walk this way. But typically speaking, this is what typifies, if you will, the walk of the Gentiles. Now, these believers in that church were Gentiles themselves, weren't they? So what is it that he's saying? Well, he's very aware what it means, they, they are very aware what it means to think and to act like a Gentile. And so he's saying, you must stop thinking and behaving like you used to think and behave. The well-worn paths which once characterized their way of life must change because they are no longer the same as they were. Earlier in Ephesians 4, in the first verse, it says, Hey, I want you folks to walk in a manner worthy, a worthy manner. And so he's just reminding them uh, that worthy manner in which they are to walk means that they have a new identity in Jesus Christ. Now, as you read this verse, uh, chapter 17, you must be aware of a couple things. First of all, he's not su suggesting that they change. Hey, you know what? It would be great if you guys would change and become different. It's actually, if you read the, if you understood the Greek, uh, what it's, the tense is there, it's actually saying that he's insisting that they change. 
And should they think for a minute that he is just expressing his opinion on the matter, he ratchets it up a bit by saying, I testify in the Lord, leaving no doubt that he is speaking with the authority of Jesus Christ. You got to stop walking the way you were, so says Christ. Now, why should they do this? Well, he's going to give reasons. Because the way of the Gentiles, he says in verse 17, is futile. That is, it's empty. It's a meaningless path. It's a path that leads nowhere. Reminds us of that proverb that says, there is a way that seems right to a man. What happens? In the end, it leads to what? To death. They are convinced, however, that this is the way that will surely lead to fulfillment. They don't walk that way saying, boy, this is exciting. I'm walking on a path that's leading to death. No, they believe with all their heart. It's a good path. It's a healthy path. But it's a dead end. It's a hopeless end. Paul is repeating the reminder of futility that he had given just a few verses before or a few chapters before. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Now that's a picture of futility. Then he goes on to say to them, in fact, the way of the world is actually not only a futile way, but it's a way that has a terrible trajectory that goes downward. Whenever human reasoning concludes something in opposition to what God has said, then God's truth, the Bible says, is being suppressed and it's being rejected. Romans chapter 1 is very clear where Paul again says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They even were, uh, he says in that passage of Romans 1, uh, rejecting the obvious thing of creation that surrounded them. The universe declaring the glory of God. They started worshiping the creation itself instead of the creator God. They were elevating their human intellect and reasoning over God's truth. So in our passage, verses 17 through 19, we see this incredible downward trajectory. It's a descending spiral that begins with something called the hardness of heart. Brian Chappelle says, the word in Greek implies a certain stubbornness and reflects the consequences of opportunities that have been resisted. This hardness of heart is the direct result of rejecting God's truth. And Paul says that people who have adopted the value system of this world are in a state, a continual state, of ignoring God's truth day in and day out. And consequently, where that leaves them is to a very hard heart. That's what he's saying, a hard heart. 
And not only does their heart, their heart become hard, but there's another result of it. It says that their understanding, as a result of that, becomes darkened. The natural man does not accept the things of God. They are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually, spiritually discerned. And so they don't get it. Hard heart leads to a darkened understanding. And subsequently, God turns away from them and they become alienated, it says, from the life of God. They are left to themselves. Sometimes my father, when I was younger, growing up, would say to me, hey, Tim, let me give you a hand with that. Give me a hand. I know what I'm doing. I remember saying that to him. And he'd say, you know, really, it, just give me a moment. It won't take long, and, I, and I'll be able to save you a lot of time. I know what I'm doing. And what would he ultimately say? Go ahead, do it yourself. And he'd walk away, and I'd say, whoa, 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 not so fast because I really don't know what I'm doing. My heart was hard. My understanding was darkened. And ultimately it led to alienation, God says, or Paul says, alienation from the life of God. Without God's hand of grace upon them, they run full bore ahead, driven to obtain what their sinful hearts crave, the things that they think will bring them satisfaction. And where does that take them? He says they become callous. That is, they lack sensitivity. Their sensory pathways become dull. Now, see, I know a little bit about this. Ever since I've been on chemotherapy, which uh, I take a pill every single day and probably will until uh, death we do part. And one of the side effects of taking a chemo pill every day is that uh, cumulatively, I have more and more neuropathy. Neuropathy is an interesting animal. You know, I, I find it mostly in my feet, maybe occasionally in my fingertips and all. What it does is the nerves become deadened or messed up. They're sending all kinds of messages, most of which are not true. You know, so I think I'm cold and I'm not. I think Karen kicked me. She didn't. <laughs> you know. My goodness, if that poor girl touches my feet, I, I roll over in pain. I said, what are you doing? And she said, touched you? Yeah. Sending bad messages to me. Neuropathy results in tingling, numbness, numbness muscle weakness, and sometimes even severe pain. Thank God that's not where I am just yet. The feeling that I once had present in my feet and hands is no longer there. Parts of my body have become insensitive and dull. A calloused heart is simply a heart which has become insensitive. It is no longer responsive to the evil things around it the way it once did. Repeated sinful behaviors have left it unresponsive. And that lack of sensitivity leaves the individual hungering and thirsting after something, anything, anything at all. 
that will make them satisfied, that will bring feeling back again. And so they embark on a journey to find relief. As Pastor Dave had preached a few weeks ago, a pursuit of happiness. What will make me happy? That's what I want. Now, where do they look? They look in a place that human reasoning takes us, a place that makes sense to them. Paul says their pursuit for satisfaction takes them in an unholy, unholy direction. They are in a state of constant pursuit of evil pleasure and in the hope of medicating their pain. That's why they go there. I just want to make it stop. And while their sins, there are sins that they encounter along the way, might bring to them some kind of temporary relief. In the end, it's always the same. It's unfruitful and it's empty. They ultimately fail to bring satisfaction. It has been said that pleasures fully indulged cease to please. And so that, Paul says, is the way of the world. The downward trajectory. And he wants them to be very aware that that's the way it was for them. Don't go there anymore. Stop. But rather, I want to show you a better way. It's the walk of the way. That is the way of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's very interesting how he starts it. He starts it with this little tiny word. It's the word but. I used to say in in a Sunday school class I was teaching, it's the biggest but in the world. What it really means in Greek is in strong contrast to anything that you have heard before it. This is the direction that I want you to think. The language is indicating that what he just said is in absolute opposition to what he is about to say. In other words, their former way of life should have nothing in common with this new way of life. Why? Because great change has come to the people who walk in the way. Now, some things to know about this great change. First of all, it cannot be obtained through enlightened thinking, though a lot of people believe that. It does not come through scientific progress. It does not come through some novel religion. And it is not something that can be legislated. You can make a law that abolishes evil behavior and people still violate it as though it doesn't exist. Am I correct? See, this goes beyond reason. This gets to the heart of the problem. That heart is desperately wicked and turned against God, and you can make any law you want. You can try to bring people to the truth of why it is that they should not do what they do, but that heart has gotten in the way. It's been pointed out that warning labels are clearly printed on a box of cigarettes that effectively says this 
These things will kill you. And we, time and again, see people walk into a store and say, give me a case of those. Unless you say, well, I'm not one who struggles with smoking. My goodness, there's tons of things that talk about the stuff we eat. There's Pastor Aaron right now. Those cheesesteaks are bad for you. I don't know if there's an article. Somebody could certainly read that or write that article. There's all kinds of, um, uh, what is it? Yeah, carcinogens. Oh, yeah. All kinds of, uh, well, I, I don't really want to talk. This is getting very convicting because I'm about to have a barbecue later on. And uh, there's going to be carcinogens I'm going to put on my grill. We know the dangers. And we still press ahead with that which we want, that which satisfies us. See, that's a problem. That's a problem. Unregenerate men, unregenerate men and women do what please them. Whatever it is that brings them satisfaction, whatever it is that makes them happy, that's what they pursue. No, Paul says that the answer to this is found not in legislation. It's found in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you three reasons, he says, to walk in the way. I'm going to give you three reasons why Christ is the answer. First, he says in verse 20, that you learned Christ. This idea carries with it more than just things about Christ. Yes, they learned about Christ, but it says actually they learned Christ. It is literally saying that they have learned the person of Jesus Christ. They have come to know him on an intimate, a very personal level, which has caused change at the very deepest level of their life. John Stott writes, The Christian whom the Ephesians had learned was calling them to standards and values totally at variance with their former pagan life. They had learned Christ so well that they were willing to receive these standards and embrace them as their own. And as such, they were now changed people. They learned Christ. And secondly, it says, you heard him. They heard Christ. Verse 21. Notice that there is no preposition in this phrase. It does not say they heard about him, though your ESV mistakenly puts that in there. There is no preposition in the Greek. Commentators point out, it literally says in the Greek, you heard him. How so? When did they hear Christ? When did Christ preach to them? Was not it pastor, pastor, was it not the apostle Paul who preached to them? I think what he's saying is such is the power and impact that had taken place when Paul preached Christ to them. They were hearing the very voice of Christ himself in the words that he spoke. Paul was the mouthpiece, but it was Christ's voice 
that was heard. Now, don't miss this. Do you recognize what Paul is saying here? It means wherever you are, and at any time the scriptures are diligently taught, accurately explained, and properly applied in keeping with the gospel of Jesus. All of that's important. Whenever those three things happen, you are hearing Christ speak. When this happens, it can be said that the voice of the teacher has become for the listener the very voice of Christ himself. At that moment, Jesus is the teacher. Why in the world are we running to church on a Sunday morning eager to hear Christ speak? Gives another reason for walking in the way. Said, you learned him. You heard him, and you were taught in him, verse 21. And while we might expect Paul to say you were taught by him or you were taught about him, he surprisingly states that they were taught in him. He is pointing to the environment in which the Ephesians were taught. The atmosphere into which these believers were immersed was, it says, the truth that is in Jesus Notice Paul refers to Christ now by use of his historical title, Jesus. And I think he does this on purpose. The truth that is in Jesus, perhaps it caused them to think back of what Jesus himself said when he spoke. In the Gospel of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. Now, since the darkness of this pagan world leads to an enslavement to impurity, one would do well to ask the question, what is the truth then that will set us free? And the answer Paul gives to this question is found in uh, 22 through 24 of our passage. Lay hold of the truth that you are now a man, and not just any man, you're a new man. That is, you've been made a new creation in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. Paul implores his listeners to do two things. To put off the old self and to put on the new self. And he employs the image of clothing, wherein the dirty and the soiled apparel is removed and discarded and replaced with a fresh, clean wardrobe. The way we have it rendered in the ESV can again be misleading. It makes it sound like this is a new action that he's calling for. But it's not a new command. Rather, he is stating something that has already taken place. And we know this because he was having the same conversation with the Colossians. 
And so when we come to Colossians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, he implores them to stop certain sinful behaviors, sinful behaviors that characterize them. And he uses the aorist tense, seeing that you have put off the old self, which indicates that he is pleading with them to act in accordance with an already settled fact. They can put away sinful and impure behavior because they already have renounced their sin at the time of their conversion. And he's reminding them of that. At the time of their conversion, they had repented. They had turned away from their sin, and they had turned to God. Now that's the part that we play. We repent, and God makes us this new creation. In my opinion, in the other way around, but that's what happens. Stott implies that the very thought of baptism could not be far from their minds as he's speaking to them. History suggests that new converts to Christianity, when they were baptized, this picture that we're talking about right now was played out very dramatically in front of them. New converts in Christ would come. Not to, I'm, I'm thinking of our little swimming pools outside here, and I'm having a hard time with this picture, but nonetheless, they would come into this water. But they would come in with their regular street clothes. The stuff of this world, the stuff of this life. And then down in the water when they're baptized, a robe is put around them, a big white robe. And they come out the other side, demonstrating this new creation that they have been made, symbolizing the death of the old self and the life of the new self. Great picture. Need white robes. Since this is their reality, in these final verses of our passage, we hear Paul urging his readers, you know what? Because of all this now, I want you to live in accordance with this new self. Because with this new self comes new desires. The new desire that pulses in this new creation is not to walk like the world walks, but to walk in the way which is a radically different walk. Verse 24 says, uh, or Paul contends in that verse, that we are in fact created, he says, in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now understand that what is really taking place is that the righteousness of Christ is being wrapped around us. He's giving us his righteousness. And in that sense, we're righteous. What he's calling them to is with that righteousness to now live a life of purity. When we speak about purity, many people think in terms of sexual purity, uh, but I don't think that is where Paul is going at this point. He's thinking about something far broader. He's talking more about holiness and righteous living. Purity in all the decisions that characterize the walk of the true follower of Jesus Christ. Now, purity in general means freedom from anything that contaminates. It's the quality of being uncompromised. 
Pure gold has been refined to the degree that all of the contaminants have been removed. Paul is referring to a purity where sin is no longer the determining factor, that it doesn't have the final word. It doesn't have the final word when it comes to the decisions and the choices that we make. Why? Because we are no longer enslaved by sin. We are a new creation in Jesus Christ. And the fruit it produces is satisfying and it's fulfilling. So why does the world see Christian Christians as killjoys and prudish? Well, the simple answer is because Christians are different. They are very different than those who walk in the way of this world. They are unique because they live by a different standard. In fact, it's the high standard of God. Peter refers to true followers of Jesus this way. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You hear the difference? That's what God has made us for. So if the world perceives these differences in Christians, they look at them and they say, you are a prude, thanks be to God. More of us should appear prudish than we do. Prudish as this world counts it to be prude. Look, all of us have a responsibility to keep on living among our friends and our neighbors who may own a radically different ethic. But while we are doing so, we must not be stained in the process. Jesus himself spent lots of time with sinners. Jesus mixed with them. But understand this, he was never ever mistaken to be one of them. What about us? Are we mistaken to be one of them? Well, if you are mistaken to being one of them, there's a question that seems important this morning. Why is that? Well, one answer is kind of obvious. Because you are one of them. If the world looks in at your life and says, I don't see any difference in you, one of the answers is, because I'm not different. I'm like the world. Maybe the things, the standards of God, as you look at it, you're like, I'm not interested in those. Being a Christian is very confining. All the stuff that you can't do it's just going to be a drain on my ability to be happy. 
There's a word here for you this morning, if that's you. Maybe today the Spirit is moving your heart in such a way that you seek forgiveness of your sin and freedom from this fruitless pursuit that you're hearing of this morning. You're, you're realizing that you're on that gerbil wheel, ever running but never getting anywhere. Hey, if that's you, come to Jesus. Entrust yourself to him. Then there may be some today who would identify yourself as a believer of Jesus, but you recognize that sin has a very strong hold of your life. Perhaps your witness is weak because you really do love this world and what it stands for. And you love it. You love to be part of it. You love it when the world sees you just like it sees them. They accept you. It's nice to be accepted. Feels good. But you discover this morning that probably it's true that the world has much more to offer you than you have to offer them. Is it that sin of which you have become so entangled is strangling the life that God intends for you? If that's true, heed the warning found in our passage this morning because that same downward slide of evil that characterized your former way of life is right there ready to suck you in. If we indulge or treat lightly our sin, if we cozy up to it, regarding it as relatively harmless, believing that no one really knows about it, and really it doesn't affect anyone else, And compared to the great sins that others commit, you know what? It's really nothing. If that casual approach to our own sin takes root, then our hearts will eventually do something. Our hearts will harden. Our minds will darken such that we begin to justify the sin that we so treasure. And eventually, we will become spiritually insensitive and apathetic toward the life God intends for us. And ultimately, we forfeit the satisfaction that we would otherwise enjoy as God's blessed people. Will you repent of that sin today? We must all take care. We must be sober-minded. We must be vigilant because Satan is hard at work seeking who he may what? devour. On July the 30th, 1945, the heavy cruiser USS Indianapolis was heading home across the Pacific, just having made a delivery of material instrumental and ending World War II. And in that ride home, the Japanese torpedo ended the return of their journey. 300 men died initially because of the sinking of this vessel. More than 900 men ended up in the ocean without any fresh water, without any shelter from the blazing sun. Ultimately, only 316 men survived the four days 
and five nights in the ocean. One of them was Chief Medical Officer Captain Lewis Haynes, who reported what happened in the water. When the hot sun came out and we were in the crystal clear water, you were so thirsty, you couldn't believe it wasn't good enough to drink. I had a hard time convincing the men that they shouldn't drink it. I can remember striking one of the men who were drinking the salt water. I wanted to stop him. But then many others drank it. They soon became dehydrated. They would hallucinate and then quickly die. Water everywhere. but none to drink. How could something so enticing fail to satisfy? How could it be? Perhaps we do well to listen to the warning given to us this morning. Brian Chappelle communicates it this way, and he says it so well, I'll end with this. The reason that sin does not satisfy is the same reason that salt water does not. We were made for what the Bible calls living water. The truth and life that are found only in Jesus Christ our Lord. Those who are redeemed will find only in him and in the life that he designs the health and happiness for which we were made. We were made for the glory of God. May our lives reflect that glory. And all this we pray in the name of of the one and only who should receive glory, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.